All right, Jesse, last week was such a tragic reminder of the impact of trauma. What's the story this time around? A marriage gets rocky as the years go by due to the increasingly bizarre behavior of one of the spouses. Then a community grows concerned when a beloved parent goes missing and the police have to follow some strange clues to ultimately discover the gruesome truth. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse, Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about big sads, deadbeat dads, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of lovely patrons. And if you have been waiting for your shout out because we were pre-recording before, this is your moment. So bear with us if you're not a patron because we've got quite a few names today. Welcome to Amanda P, Faith D, and Shanna M, Louise O, Laura Beth M, and Zoe W, Laura S, Maria J, and Cassie B, Priya K, Jessica B, and Tiffany K, Shiloh G, Deborah P, and Nicole J, Lindsay B, Taylor C, and Caitlin B, Danielle S, Yannick S, Carmen A H. And last, but certainly not least, Allison A. Welcome, y'all. Yay! We are back. We are back from our travels. And I am just so excited to be back in the recording seat today with you, Andy. I'm so excited, too. I mean, I wish we were together, to be honest. That would be better. (laughs) Well, we got a little spoiled by spending all that time together. But now at least I get to look at your beautiful face over Zoom. Okay, well, I think with all that being said, we should jump right into it. We'll give you guys some more updates about book club and what exciting extra special things are going on at Patreon next week. But since we have been waiting for so long to get back into the groove, Andy, I think we should jump right into it. Totally. Rural Bear County, located in South Texas, is the type of place where you know your neighbors. So that's why farmer Gil Medean thought it was very odd when he saw a strange suburban drive up and down the dusty road by his house four or five times on the night before Thanksgiving 2002. It was a quiet night. Across the country, college kids were returning to their hometowns and raising hell. Families were coming together, some peacefully, some contentiously, and highways were packed with cars carrying their occupants to loved ones. But here, out on a rural route hardly ever used by anyone who wasn't a local, the suburban was conspicuous. And then, when Gil saw smoke rising from a nearby abandoned farmhouse, on and off throughout the next week, his concern deepened. Still, it was the type of county where one kept to oneself, 
until Gil heard on the news about a missing person and the link to a stolen Suburban. Oh. In January of 2003, he called the police. By then, it was far too late for the poor missing soul. The discovery at the abandoned farmhouse would bring bloody closure to a statewide search, but deliver terrible grief and horrible realizations to one loving family. So this is a case that once again shows us that often the most dangerous person in your life is the one that you've chosen to share it with. And the most dangerous time is when you feel like you might finally be breaking free to start over. Sadly, too often a lesson in this podcast. My main source today is the book Gone Forever by Diane Fanning. This has to be like our sixth Diane Fanning. So thank you, Diane. I also watched a show called Blood, Lies, and Alibis, season one. Wow. That's a title right there. (laughs) Season one, episode 10. And also, you know, Andy, our friends Daphne and Heath over at Going West also covered this case, which was, I think, a while ago. I believe it was maybe back in like 2020 around Thanksgiving. So we always give them a shout out if we're able to because we love them. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Yes. So with all of those sources behind us, we are going to get this episode going and we're going to start by talking about a woman named Susan. Susan Smith, and I'm not talking about that Susan Smith, y'all. I know y'all are crime junkies, so you probably know about the Susan Smith who killed her children. We are not talking about that Susan Smith today. Our Susan was born on New Year's Eve, 1958. And all those who knew and loved Sue said that this was a very auspicious birth date because she embodied the spirit of New Year's Eve. She was vivacious, convivial, and she had a wide social circle. She was always up for a party. You know the type of person that's kind of just like a party themselves? Like you can just be in a room with them and it feels like a party. Yeah, so she was wearing a New Year's Eve hat and (laughs) had like one of those blowy streamer things all the time. She came right out of the womb like that. She had like a little New Year's baby sash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, exactly. Sue had a very intelligent and close-knit family. Her mother had multiple degrees at a time when many young women especially were not encouraged to pursue higher education. Yeah. And her father was an FBI agent. Ooh. Yeah. She was the youngest of four by a very large margin. Her older three siblings were 15, 13, and 11 years old when she was born. Whoa. If anyone ever suggested, however, that maybe she was a mistake, she would cheekily correct them saying, no, I'm a bonus. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like something you would say. It does. It does. It's actually I was like getting flashes of me like accidentally having a child in 10 years, which we're not going to. We've already made plans for that. And I was like, oh, man, that little sucker would be like exactly like this if we had a bonus baby in a decade. So Sue grew into a smart, attractive, and popular young woman who was constantly surprising people. She invited her family to her William Woods College graduation in 1981, and she didn't even tell them that she was graduating cum laude. So they like waited until her name was called, and they're like, what? You got that honor? They had no idea. So she was enjoying the fact that sometimes she undersold herself and surprised people. And her friends and family were also surprised when she jumped headlong into a career in accounting which is a very buttoned up and practical career for the fun-loving life of the party type of character that Sue was. But that choice in reflection was very representative of who Sue was. She 
knew how to have a good time, but she knew how to work. She knew when to be rational. She was the definition of work hard, play hard. And it was how she chose to experience life, which was everything all at once, responsibly, but with re the realization that life is meant to be enjoyed as well. Sue spent the next couple of years finding herself professionally and working for some of the biggest and well-known companies in the States, including Enron before it fell. In 1987, she took a higher up position with the Southwestern Bell Corporation and moved back to St. Louis, which is where her family lived. Now, career-wise, this was a great move, but it also gave her a chance to reconnect with that family and perhaps find a nice Midwestern guy to settle down with. She was about to turn 30, and this is, of course, back in the late 80s, so that was a time when there was significant pressure, I think, especially on women to get married before 30 or around 30. Thankfully, I feel like nowadays we have way less hang-ups about yes. 30 or even 40 or even getting married in Ever. general. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't have to now, which is great, because I know even when we were growing up, there was some weird concept about it. Yes. In late 1988, only weeks before her 30th birthday, Sue met a guy that she thought was exactly whom she had been looking for. She met a young, successful stockbroker named Rick McFarland at a party. Now, Rick, or his full given name was Richard, was born May 23rd, 1954 in Pennsylvania, but his family had moved to Webster Grove in St. Louis when he was a child. He and Sue discovered that they had actually even gone to the same high school but they hadn't crossed paths before because Rick was a few years ahead of Sue. Immediately after meeting him at the party, Sue called one of her high school friends, a woman named Sandy, to see if Sandy could remember him, which is what you do when you meet a cute guy that you're interested in. You got to vet him, obviously. Send the Instagram page over. <laughs> That's what best friends are for. They're to get out the social media detective hat and figure out what red flags are already there before you get in too deep. Well, they didn't have social media back then, but Sandy did remember Rick, and she recalled that he had played water polo and that she thought he was a pretty popular type guy. She said, quote, that he was a hang with the cheerleaders type of the guy. What does that mean? I don't really know what that means, because it didn't really seem like he was a super ladies man, but I think maybe she just meant that it seemed like he hung with like a jock crew if he played water polo and hung with cheerleaders. Rick had gone on to Southwest Missouri State University, and then he had snagged a job with a stock brokerage company. When he met Susan, he appeared to have really made it. He wore all the signs of success. He had a nice house and a good neighborhood. He drove a BMW. He volunteered and contributed to various local charities. And he just seemed like a solid, good guy who wanted the same things in life that Sue did. It was clear right away that she believed Rick was marriage material, and Rick also saw the relationship heading very speedily in that direction. He was a couple years older than Sue, as it stood. Some of Sue's loved ones felt that the couple might have been a little mismatched. The kindest interpretation was that they were just opposites who attracted. Rick was reserved, stable. He was not considered very quick-witted or the life of the party by any means, meaning that Sue is very fast with a witty repartee. And to some of her friends and family, it seemed like he couldn't quite keep up with her. Yeah. But she seemed happy. She seemed like she was looking for that kind of solid, stable guy with a good career in finance. 
and that she didn't necessarily want somebody that was going to be as take charge and as large of a presence as she was. Okay. So for the most part, everyone was like, okay, they're opposites, but she seems really happy. Her niece, Kirsten, who is like more like a cousin because of the age differences of her and her siblings, was one person, whoever, who thought that Sue was settling, that maybe she could have done better. But I mean, she kind of also did that with her career, too. Like she did something that was comfortable and she was going to have stability with and excel in. So it's not super foreign for her to act that way in an area of her life. Yeah, that actually makes a really good point and a parallel that I didn't even see, which is true. It's that people look at her and they see this huge energy and expect like a wild career and a wild husband. And she picks things that are grounding. You also have to remember what Paula Abdul said. (laughs) What did Paula Abdul say? (laughs) That opposites attract. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Poet Abdul. Around the time of that song and music video as well, <laughs> if you remember. True. So maybe, maybe Paula Abdul is inspiring Sue here. So we don't know as much about Rick's background, but we do know that his mother, Mona, who it appeared was very religious, had some reservations about the couple, especially after they got engaged extremely quickly. Mona was pretty uptight by everything I read about her. And she believed that Sue was some sort of party girl. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not the serious, conservative, stay-at-home mom type that she had imagined for her son. Oh, so she didn't like that she had a career. Yeah. And I do think that on both sides, there are some red flags here because If you get into a relationship, especially one that you think is heading towards marriage or you're feeling very strongly about and you're thinking about having children with that person, and it seems like everybody around you, the people that know you the best in the world, for better or for worse, because I don't agree with Mona, obviously, but maybe she knew something about her son that we don't know, feels like it's not a good match. Before you get too deep, maybe you should consider why if you really do trust that the people who love you have your back. Yeah. I mean, God, could you imagine if I had gone through with marrying that one guy? A few of the ones that... (laughs) You would have never let me. It would have been the type of thing where it would have been like, does anyone object? And I would have been like, I object (laughs) from the like bridesmaid row. Hold on. You're like, have your, you put down your bridesmaids mocha (laughs) and you hold up like a a protest sign. I object. (laughs) You would have. Yeah. So if you really believe that the people who know you and love you have your best interests at heart. Yeah, it's just hard because it seems like hers is irrational. Like hers is a little patriarchal and not. Mona's doesn't really make sense. It's not fair because also it's not like Sue was going out doing drugs and like partying all the time. She was, she just liked to have a glass of wine and listen to music and And work, be a fun person (laughs) and work all the time. I mean, let her unwind a little bit. So, but what did the other people say then? People who are a little bit more level-headed. Well, it didn't seem like, as far as I could read, that Rick had a ton of very close friends. Well, that's another red flag then. Yeah, he was even particularly close to his brothers because he had two younger brothers as well that he was only moderately close with. So it definitely seemed like his parents were the type of people who think that their son can do no wrong and that no one can measure up to, which is an impossible in-law situation. I know that there's probably some of you guys out there who feel like you're in that in-law situation where no matter what you do, you can't please your mother or father-in-law because they put their child on a pedestal. 
I am feel very grateful that my in-laws are absolutely wonderful. They literally just left this morning and they also they've adopted Andy as yeah. their in-law as well, their daughter-in-law. <laughs> so I don't have that situation, but I know about it and I hear about it all the time from people and it's a very shitty dynamic to have to be in Yeah, it's horrible. with a family for the rest of your life. Yeah. So nonetheless, Sue and Rick were married on August 12th, 1989. They had known each other for less than a year at the time of their wedding. And this wedding was bananas huge. I mean, this was like diplomat's daughter political wedding big. They had 400 guests, Andy. How? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we've done um, a St. Louis episode before, and I know that it's very based on community and social hierarchy. So maybe there's some rules. I'll be going to one next year, and it's going to be big too. Really? And it's in St. Louis? Mm Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just how y'all do it out there. I don't know, because 400 seems absurd to me. And it was also the type of thing where there's like nine bridesmaids and nine groomsmen. So it's like a gigantic wedding party. It's the whole nine yards. So they had a big, big wedding. And Kirsten, her niece, said that it really was the version of a fairy tale wedding that you could imagine from the late 80s, like the puffy sleeves, the whole nine yards. It is a very, very much the fairy tale extravaganza wedding. But Sue would soon find out that her Prince Charming had not been completely honest with her. About? Only days before the wedding, she had found out that Rick had changed jobs three weeks earlier and had never consulted her about the career move or had even told her why he was leaving the good job she thought he had and why he was starting at a new place. So she never knew what happened there. And then after the wedding, she discovered that her seemingly successful brand new husband had a mountain of debt that he had brought now into the marriage. From what? I think that he really couldn't afford that nice house and that BMW and all of the fancy dinners he took her on to woo her. And there was a certain lifestyle that Rick had become accustomed to, but he had never earned. Wow. Okay. Another red flag. But unfortunately, when you get married that fast, sometimes you don't find these things out until it's too late. So, you know, debt in general isn't a huge red flag because I think on some level, most of us bring some debt into a marriage, whether it's your school loans or something that happened in your medical health life. But secret debt, (laughs) secret debt (laughs) is a huge red flag because If you're a responsible person getting married, I mean, even with Nathaniel and I getting married five months into our relationship, we still went through our bank accounts and our investments and all of our debt and compared our debt and made a plan for paying it off together. So if you have debt, like most people, especially in the United States have, that's not a big deal. You just have to talk about it with your partner. Before you get married, ideally. Before it becomes their responsibility (laughs) as well. Yeah. And there was also this. Well, Susan continued to get promoted at Southwestern Bell, and she is just rising through the ranks. Rick seemed to have a hard time keeping a job. So he had a great job that he had had since college somehow when they met. But then he ended up leaving his new stock brokerage after only six months, and he changed to selling insurance. However, his pushy sales tactics really turned people off. So he was trying to sell insurance policies to everyone in Sue's life, which was getting really embarrassing. He was calling her siblings. He was trying to sell to her parents. 
It got so bad that he was even coming into her office at Southwestern Bell and trying to sell to her coworkers. That's so weird. It's so weird and it's embarrassing. And it was really hard for Sue because she was in a position of power by that point. So he was going to people who worked for her who were getting put in an awkward situation because mm-hmm. their boss's husband was trying to sell insurance to them. So it was really embarrassing. And Sue basically had to tell him that he wasn't allowed to come to her job ever after that. So this inability to hold a job was frustrating, but it wasn't the end of the world because obviously Sue was really holding down a great job, but it became a bigger problem when Sue became pregnant with their first child and she ended up giving birth to a baby boy on March 1st, 1991. Well, soon after that birth, Rick was fired from the insurance company. What? Yep. He was out of work for 15 very stressful months. So stay at home, dad. Yeah, only he wasn't even really, he would say he was like looking for work, but he wasn't really helping out that much. And I'm not entirely sure if this was the case. There was some reports that maybe Sue would have liked to stay home or at least have had the option to. That was obviously something her mother-in-law thought like a good wife does. Yeah. But it's like your son needs a job then. I can't stay at home with nobody bringing in money and we can't pay our mortgage. When she can. Yes. So she had to stay working because her husband was out of work. So this was a forced situation and that always breeds resentment. Whether or not she would have stayed home with their children if she had a choice, she just didn't have a choice. And I think not having a choice always breeds a little resentment. Of course. Or communication at all of what either of you want. Exactly. Or being honest about your books or, you know, I mean, there's like a lot building up already. (laughs) There's already a lot of stuff building up in this marriage that's being thrown at them pretty early. I mean, thrown at Sue because it sounds like a lot of this is of Rick's making. So at this point, Sue has a brand new baby. She is trying to get out of his debt, his mountain of debt. And she's also suffering in-law issues because obviously her mother-in-law would visit all the time to try to help with the baby. But there was always this critique about how she was doing things or, you know, the backhanded comments about how she had to go to work and leave the baby. And it was really starting to pile up into Sue. So she ended up pulling some strings to get Rick hired at Southwestern Bell after he had been out of work for 15 months. So when he finally got that secure employment, she breathed a sigh of relief until July of 1993 when Sue was about seven or eight months pregnant with her second son. And she discovered that Rick had been fired just short of his one-year anniversary with her company. Stop. Yes. So he claimed to her that they had unfairly fired him just short of his anniversary because if he had worked past the year, he would be eligible for a union grievance and he'd be eligible for other union benefits. And so he claimed to Susan that he had done nothing wrong and that they were just cutting him out before they had to give him certain benefits. Now, Sue was an executive, with this company by this point. So she was able to pull rank and say, I want to look into what happened with my husband. And what she discovered was extremely disheartening, to say the least. Multiple employees had requested department transfers because they hated working with Rick. Two employees even told HR that they would 
quit if management did not get rid of Rick. It's him or me, basically, they said. How crazy is that? That's like such a big red flag. People just refused to work with him. They said he was impossible. And it gets even worse when a supervisor tried to speak to Rick to basically say, you've got to change your behavior or else we're going to fire you. This is a final warning. His behavior became aggressive and threatening to her. So when he was ultimately fired, his female supervisor needed an escort to and from her car for weeks and weeks after the termination because she was so concerned about retaliation. So this is not a good look. Obviously, this is very embarrassing for Sue. So scary. And very scary. And she's also extremely pregnant with their second child at this point. Oh, my God. So scary. Well, miraculously, Rick did get another sales job before the birth of their second child, but it didn't work out. So he got another sales job and then another, and he just could not seem to keep a job. And especially when you're working in sales, as any of you guys out there know, and I know because I did work in sales for a while, that in order to start making real money, you have to make commission, which means that you have to build relationships. So if you're leaving a sales job every three to six months, you're not making any money because there's no way you built a rapport or a list of clients at that point. So you're not making any commission. You're just getting a very low base salary. You're not going to make any money. There's no stability for your family at all. Exactly. So he's just at this point, job hopping, not making a lot of money. There's a lot of stress going on in the family. Unfortunately, Sue suffered a miscarriage in 1997 during this time. <sighs> It was really sad, too, because Sue very, very desperately wanted a daughter, and she already had two boys, and this third child, they believed, was a girl after she miscarried, unfortunately. However, the next year, she did end up having the couple's last child, which was also a son. So three kids, three boys, husband that's not always working all of the time. By the time their third child was born, Sue's company was merging with another corporation. And it was a time frame of a lot of unrest within the company. Like, who's going to get booted? Who's going to stay? Are people going to get transferred? Are they going to have to move to the new company's headquarters? And she ended up getting offered an executive position in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And she was excited by this. Earlier on in her career, before she went to Southwestern Bell, she had actually worked at another job that was located in or near San Antonio. And she liked the area. She had a very good friend who lived there still. And the marriage was not going very well at this point. So she thought that maybe going to Texas, getting a whole new environment, a fresh start would help their marriage. Also, it would help her get away from her poisonous mother-in-law, of course. Yeah. I feel like that's like a good place to go with kids to San Antonio. I've never been, but from what I read in Diane Fanning's book and just in general online, it seemed like a great environment for a young family. So yeah, this actually did seem like it was working for a little while. Rick ended up scoring a job selling advertising on buses, like the billboards on buses. Okay. <laughs> I mean, at least he's working. I'm not laughing about that being a job. It's just that his jobs keep getting more and more random. Totally random. Yes. Yeah. He's like, can I sell you... <laughs> advertising on the glass of beer you're drinking at this bar. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just getting more and more random what he's selling. But obviously she got a big raise. They got a big bonus for moving. 
And they found a beautiful house in a leafy suburb with great schools. So it just really did seem like maybe their fortune was turning and this whole family was going to mend. But as we well know, Andrea, you cannot run from your problems. They will follow you wherever you go. Especially if you live with it. <laughs> if, if the problem is your spouse, you definitely can't run from it until you. you get divorced. Because I'll come find you. <laughs> Well, Rick's unpleasant personality and aggressively odd behavior immediately turned off many of their new neighbors. For instance, this is when they first moved there and they're trying to make a good impression on their new community. While their next door neighbors were on vacation, Rick cut down a tree in their neighbor's backyard because it was, quote, dropping too many leaves on my yard. Oh, my God. That's like such an annoying neighbor thing. It's very weird. Even how the neighbor comes home, he's just met this guy. And he's like, hey, did you happen to see anybody in my backyard? Because my tree is gone. Somebody cut down my tree while I was on vacation. And he's like, no, I didn't see anyone. And he was real weird. And so <laughs> the neighbor was like, Rick, did you cut down my tree? And he's like, yeah, but I didn't see anyone else back here. Wait, how weird. That's like such a weird way to go about it. Like, nope, didn't see anyone else. And then when asked directly, being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. It was dropping leaves on my yard. I didn't like it. So, yeah, so that obviously didn't make a good impression. Also, if you guys are listening from a different country, I feel like in the United States, people are very territorial, but especially in Texas, like you don't go onto somebody else's land and do some shit to it. No, they have guns. Yeah. <laughs> This is like, that's a dangerous prospect to go around and start messing with somebody else's property. It's more places than Texas now. Like, I feel like you see those signs way more often. Yeah. Just in general, don't F with your neighbor's shit. Send them a nice letter and some cookies and ask them, like, would you consider pruning your tree? Definitely just don't take it upon yourself. So... This obviously got him off to the wrong foot with this neighbor. And in order to mollify the guy, Rick's like, look, okay, yeah, maybe I screwed up. I shouldn't have cut down your tree without your permission. I feel bad. That's crazy. Like, did he just leave the stump? Yeah, he like hauled the whole tree away. <laughs> the stump's just there. Like the tree never existed minus the stump. Because like, it's kind of rude if you just leave the stump. Like you need to do stump removal if you're going to like cut down <laughs> someone's tree. Like that's so unhinged. Like... If I came home and there was just a stump, like, I'd be more pissed than if they, like, actually took care of it and, like, covered it up with rocks or grass. I think it would be even funnier, though, if he had removed the, like, stump and, like, put down some grass or something. So it was, like, astroturf disappeared. Like, yeah. Different cover. Like, it was, like, all real grass. <laughs> and he just put Just a square of astroturf just laid down. Nothing to see here. Move on. It gets way worse, Andy, though. Because he's like, look, I feel bad. Guess what? I also have a side business making websites for people. So, you know, Rick because I did this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's selling websites. He's like, I'll, I'll do a website for your business. Have you heard of this thing called the World Wide Web? I sell websites. I feel badly for what I did. And I know you have a business. You don't have a web presence. So I'll build you a www.business site. How to remove trees.com. <laughs> so the guy's like okay fine i guess so if you want to make me feel better about taking my tree then you can build me a website so rick starts building this guy a very rudimentary website and then he says he sends him a bill 
for $2,500 for making the like bare bones website, which is more like $4,500 in today's money. And the guy was like, are you shitting me? <laughs> like, I'm not paying this bill. You were supposed to do this because you cut down my tree. And he's like, no, I, I'm just giving you a discount because I cut down your tree. The bill is actually for tree removal. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy was like, yeah, you're going to have to go to therapy F yourself. <laughs> yeah. He's not making friends at the HOA over here. But apparently also this neighbor then went to one of his pals and was complaining about Rick. He's like, my crazy neighbor is pulling all this shit. And he's like, wait, what's the guy's name? And he said, Rick McFarland. He's like, oh, that guy's a fucking scam artist. He called the neighbor's friend's company and was trying to get them to buy advertising for the side of a bus. And the guy said no. And then he invoiced his boss as if he had said yes. <laughs> and the guy was like, well, when the boss called and he's like, no, I talked to my employee and he said no. He never said yes. He never consented to our advertising with your company. And he's like, oh, well, he did. And I've already done the mock-up, so you got to pay. <laughs> so he's just free-balling now. He's just a con man. He started as a pushy salesman, and he's decided to full-on go into... Lying. Con land. Yeah, just lying. Well, as you can imagine, I'm sure that his company was getting lots of complaints, and he ended up losing the bus sales job as well. And after going through two additional sales jobs that he was also fired from or left, it's unclear, Rick finally did settle into officially being a stay-at-home dad in the summer of 2000. I mean, it's about time. Your partner has an actual legitimate career that she is talented at. Like, meal prep, sir. Meal prep. I also have to say, I think that their youngest was three when this happened, which is, yes, of course, a challenging age. But, like, you can put a kid in preschool at three. Right. So I'm pretty sure it's like also he became, Yeah, he became a stay-at-home dad at the time when, like, all of the children were in school, basically, already. <laughs> yeah, that's so a big like, old double middle finger. It is. And, guys, I, I was, I still am, to a certain extent, a stay-at-home mom. So I know it's not easy, no matter how old your kids are. But it's a hell of a lot easier when they're gone for a few hours every day. So this... Like you said, though, that she's has a great career. She is very good at what she does. So this would have been a good setup because we don't care, especially, I mean, maybe back then and maybe in Texas, they cared a little bit more. But in general now, I think the, the sentiment is if one person has a great job and the other person is able to raise the children, that's wonderful. It doesn't matter what gender or sex the person is. It absolutely does not. And so this would have been a great setup, but... Rick failed as spectacularly at parenting as he did his career aspirations. Neighbors and schoolmates' parents recall that the three boys were completely out of control and that Rick was just screaming at them at the top of his lungs almost constantly. Worse yet was the fact that I think maybe two out of three or maybe all three of the kids had been diagnosed with ADHD. and he was stealing their medication and taking it himself. So he was taking their Ritalin. He was taking their Ritalin, essentially. Wow, no wonder he was screaming at the top of his lungs. Yeah, and it was getting to the point where Sue was recognizing differences in her children, and she's like, what's going on? Did you give them their medicine today? Because she would have to leave really early for work, and he was the one who was supposed to get the kids off to school. 
And he would say, well, I talked to my mom and we don't think that the kids actually have ADHD and we don't think that they actually need their medication. So if he ever took the kids to visit his parents or if they were alone with Rick for any period of time, he would just stop medicating their children. Because he was taking it. He was taking it. And there was also, I think, one of the children was prescribed an antidepressant and he just straight up wouldn't give the kid his pills. Oh, my God. The other part of this, which is anyone who's been a stay-at-home parent knows that you're taking care of the kids, but there's also an expectation that you're taking care of the house to a certain extent or just making sure that, you know, laundry doesn't pile up and that, you know, you have food that you can make dinner. You know, there's a significant greater portion of the household chores that usually falls to the stay-at-home parent. And he wasn't doing any of it. So she is like working all the time, trying to grocery shop on her way home and figure out how she could feed the kids something healthy quickly because she's not getting home until 6 p.m. or later after she's done the grocery shopping and then laundry all evening before she has to get up and do it again. So she's super stressed out and he did not seem to care. So she'd be calling him and being like, hey, can you have X, Y, and Z done because I have to stop at the grocery store. Then I have to get home and I have to start cooking and I just need you to do this one thing. And he's like, well, just pick up McDonald's for them. And she's like, how do you not understand that we need to feed our kids healthy food? Like McDonald's is fine once in a while, but I'm not going to just give them like, what are you doing that you can't feed my kids? (laughs) What are you doing? Like you could help if you like took the kids to the grocery store or you went, you know, while they were at school. Like, why can't you help me? I mean, I feel like he should be able to be doing a lot of stuff if he's taking Ritalin during the day. (laughs) Yeah, no. like he should be able to be cleaning. He should be able to be doing like um, an Three amazing. Things at once. Yeah, if you're on Ritalin that you don't need and you're not prescribed, you should be flying high through those chores. Yeah, well, it looks like at this point he just had all of these weird, like two bit cons and tiny little get rich schemes. Like he had a rebate scam. Oh my god! Yeah, he would buy a bunch of stuff at like I don't know what's that like paper store like the like staples or something like he would go into like a staples or a best buy and buy a bunch of stuff that had rebates send the rebates in and then return the items to the store (laughs) so he's doing a bunch of stuff like that and that actually (laughs) this is also embarrassing it resulted in him being banned from several stores like his photo was on the wall in the break room (laughs) (laughs) like he wasn't like if you see this guy kick him out it's like next to every register so, of course, this is embarrassing for Sue because if they wanted to go anywhere over the weekends, he'd be like, oh, I can't go to that store because of my rebate scam. <laughs> I know that it's not funny for Sue. It must be infuriating, but it's so ridiculous. He also had kept the work cell phone that he had been provided from one of his last failed sales jobs. He had just never returned the cell phone to the employer. And Sue didn't find out about this until they got some sort of legal letter in the mail that he needed to pay his cell phone bill and return the cell phone to the company because he had run up like $1,000 in calls on the work cell phone after he was terminated. Who was he calling? The rebate centers? I don't know. Maybe his mom. His mom and rebate centers. A lot of the time, Sue would also get calls from the school that her children were not there or they had been hours late. She would, of course, call Rick, who would say that he didn't take them to school because they were watching educational television, which was basically just as good as being in school. What type of educational television? 
I have no idea, and I doubt it was actually educational television. Like Sesame Street? Maybe, and these children are past the age of Sesame Street really helping development, I would say, except for maybe the youngest. I mean, sitting in front of the TV is not the same as being in school, period. There's a reason why you have to be in school or in an accredited homeschool program by a certain age because it's important. So she's just so frustrated. It's like you had one job. Just get the kids to school. I'm doing everything else and you can't do that. So she just at this point was beside herself because she doesn't know what to do. And to make matters worse, Rick had joined a men's Christian group called the Promise Keepers. Oh. Do you know about the Promise Keepers? No, but I know it sounds creepy as hell. It does. So Promise Keepers is an evangelical Christian men's organization that opposes same-sex marriage, champions chastity, and marital fidelity, as well as the man being the lead and the head of the household. I told you it was scary. So they're a real fun bunch, these guys. (laughs) The part that was concerning to Sue was that the organization hammered into their followers' minds That divorce was not an option. So what do they do if they're unhappy in their marriage? I think we're going to unfortunately find out. And by this point, the marriage was irretrievably broken in Sue's mind. So she didn't see any other way out except for divorce. So now she's in a situation where Rick is coming home from these meetings and spewing all of this biblical stuff about husbands and wives and their marriage and how he's never going to let her get a divorce. So this is becoming an increasingly desperate situation. By the summer of 2001, it was clear that Sue was not the only person in the McFarland family who was being mistreated by Rick. So trigger warning here for child abuse. One of the son's swim coaches noticed several small round bruises and contusions on his body. And when she asked what caused them, the child admitted that Rick had forced him to stand still while Rick had slammed tennis balls into his body, basically served them into his body over and over again as punishment for not paying attention to his tennis lesson. The coach was, of course, horrified. She called Sue, and she also reported Rick to Child Protective Services. Good for her. I honestly, like, thank God for coaches and teachers and counselors and all of these people who just look out for this stuff. Absolutely. And it's such a hard job. Oh, my God. Could you imagine being an educator or a coach in today's world, underpaid, and then having to deal with parents that do things like this. Unfortunately, the child rescinded his story, saying it was an accident. He had accidentally turned on the ball thrower or he accidentally got in front of the tennis ball thrower or something like that. Repeatedly? Repeatedly, which, of course, the coach did not believe. She just felt like, obviously, Rick had gone through to the child somehow and asked the child to lie. And Sue ended up telling CPS, too, that there wasn't a problem for whatever reason, whether she believed what the child was saying because of what Rick said to the child or she was worried about how would it affect divorce proceedings. I have no idea why Sue 
backed Rick up in that situation. But after she did, CPS totally dropped the investigation. That was it. It was over. The frustrated coach followed up with CPS, but they said that there was nothing they could do. And that next time she was worried that something was happening to the child, they should just call the police. What? But the coach was not the only one who was witnessing abusive behaviors. Neighbors said that Rick screamed at the boys near constantly and that one neighbor even overheard him telling the oldest boy that he hated him. He was screaming, I hate you, over and over to a child. One neighbor was also told by the oldest child that his father had beat him with a bat, but still nothing was done. Like I said, it's never entirely clear what Sue knew or believed about the child abuse, because obviously there was a lot of times that he was alone with the boys that she was not. But it's also clear that by this point, emotionally, she had a lot on her plate. And I think she was trying to figure out how to get out of this marriage in one piece. So I'm sure she was overwhelmed. In journal entries from the end of 2001 into 2002, she discussed the intense pressure she was under. She worried about her children. And she was working, of course, a full-time job. But she said that Rick refused to get a real job, nor did he help out around the house. When her mother became ill, the family traveled to St. Louis to be with, this is Sue's mother, during what would be her last Christmas on Earth. And she would later write in a journal that after a long day in the hospital, being with her mother, who was dying, she ended up going back to his parents' house, mother-in-law Mona, and she had brought a bottle of wine because they weren't drinkers. And she had poured herself two glasses of wine throughout the entire evening. And she said after that, while her mother was in the hospital and dying, her mother-in-law started telling people that she had a drinking problem. Unbelievable. She like wrote in her journal, like, maybe it's just because my mother is dying and I am stressed out. And I had literally two glasses of wine. That's it. <sighs> and it's Christmas. That's the time that normally people, even people who don't normally drink, usually raise a glass to celebrate. Or five. <laughs> or if you're part of the <laughs> Andy and Jesse family contingency. <laughs> Peppermint vodka. <laughs> My grandmother's 100 years old. She's now 101. And she was at Thanksgiving and Christmas drinking peppermint vodka shots. On top of all of this, like the in-law stuff, the full-time job, the Concerns about her children during CPS investigations, the wanting to divorce her husband, and he's in this organization that is telling him he is not going to allow her to. On top of all of this, in the summer of 2002, she also had to do jury duty. Oh, my God. Could you imagine a worse timing? I feel like she should have been excused from that. <laughs> she should have been excused, too. It's like a, She's like, I'm fully taking care of an entire family. Please, please let me go. Well, nope. She served on a jury. Oh my God, bless her. <laughs> no. The defendant was a guy named Richard Clemmer who owned a Texaco gas station and had been accused of ripping off senior citizens in some sort of religious-based scam. It was never entirely clear to me what the ins and outs of this scam were. So the jury, including... Sue voted to convict and Richard was given two years probation and I think he had to pay some sort of restitution. Sue made sure to tell all of her friends and neighbors to not patronize Clemmer's Texaco business station any longer after what she had found out during this trial. So he still had his station? 
he still had his Texaco station, so he must have been able to pay off whatever he had to pay off but keep his business. There was speculation that Clemmer found out about Sue telling people to not go to him and blackballing him, essentially. And there were some rumors that he was aware that she had a vendetta against him. So obviously he didn't like her as well. So all of this is a lot. She's got this good for nothing, allegedly abusive husband, grief over her mother's death, who died shortly after their visit. Children that all had some sort of learning disability or, you know, needed extra help at school, which, of course, their father was not providing. In-laws from hell. And now she had served on a jury of a potential con man with an axe to grind about her. So this is just overwhelming. And Sue had finally had enough. On November 8th, 2002, Sue had her first meeting with a divorce attorney. She said whether he believes in divorce or not, he's getting served. This is happening. This is going to be the first step of me getting the rest of my life together. She had actually inherited some money from her mother. And she told her sister, who was the one who was doling out their inheritances, the executor of the estate. And she told her sister, I'm going to get a new bank account that Rick doesn't know anything about because I'm going to use the money that mom left me to get a divorce. And I don't want him to be able to get his hands on my inheritance money because this is what I'm going to be using it for. So four days later, she opened up a brand new secret bank account and she also began to try to direct her paycheck or at least big chunks of her paycheck to this new account that was in her name only. She told her sister and several close friends about her intentions to divorce Rick, but she asked everyone to keep it quiet as she did not want Rick to know until all of the pieces were in place. So she wanted to have enough money in the bank. She wanted to be ready to file papers and have a rental property already in place so that when she dropped the divorce bomb on him, she could already have the kids moved out and herself have a safe spot. She told one friend that recently Rick had become aggressive. He had been yelling and screaming in her face. And she was concerned that there could be a physical response if she told him she was getting divorced. So this is a secret. This is something she doesn't want him to know about until she has all of the pieces in place. But on the very same day that Sue opened her new bank account, Rick hacked into her computer and downloaded the following files. All of her journal entries, which she kept on her computer. Ew! The paperwork that she had filed for her divorce attorney that she had to have to send to her divorce attorney, which was client and custody questionnaires, as well as a list of properties and assets. Uh, so even though she's telling everyone, let's keep this hush-hush, I got to get all of the things ready, Rick now knew everything. And he wasn't going to yell and scream this time. He was going to plot and plan because Rick McFarland did not believe in divorce and he had no intention of letting his wife walk away from their marriage. Andy, you know that one of my favorite things, of course, besides you, this podcast and our children, is trying out new beauty products. Oh yeah, it is 100% your thing. And it's the coolest when we find something that we both love. I love it, especially when you tell me about things, which you did about today's sponsor, 
And this is something that you and I have talked about that can be a total pain, shaving, and it makes it a total pleasure. Yeah, we are, of course, talking about the Athena Club razor. It is an absolute improvement over my old razor. The blade on my old razor used to get all goopy just after a few uses, but with Athena, the water-activated serum means that there's enough of it to soothe while shaving, and it never, ever gets gunky on the blade. Yes, and unlike my old razor that left my legs dry and got dull very quickly, the sharp blades on Athena Club's razors are really gentle on my skin, leaving me feeling moisturized and super smooth. Honestly, since I've switched, I've gotten zero razor bumps with Athena Club's razor, and I used to get them all of the time. It's also so important during the summer when you're wearing a bathing suit. Well, that's because the Athena Club razor is designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on your curves. Plus, the razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which is, of course, a holy grail for skincare. The best part is the razor kit is only $10 and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, which I am completely obsessed with, and your choice of a handle color. The handle color options are very cute, but they even have black and white razors for all of you minimalists out there. Of course, I have the blush color, which is what the color of everything in my bathroom is. <laughs> it is. I got the baby blue, actually, instead of black or white, and I'm really digging it. Also, with Athena Club, you never have to think about blade refills, which is so nice because you choose how often you want your replacement blades shipped to you for free. And you'll never be stuck with an overused blade longer than it should be used for, which I have been so guilty of in the past. <laughs> Join the club. The Athena Club. <laughs> okay, that was on purpose, guys. Athena Club also has the most amazing show foam that will leave your skin super soft, hydrated, and smooth. Also, the shaving cream truly smells like a super bloom flower cloud. You know I am a true sucker for lychee, especially in martinis. <laughs> it's no wonder Athena Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews from customers. Switch to the better razor and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Get started today by shopping in-store at Target stores nationwide. Just head to the shaving aisle to find the razor kit, cloud shave foam, wax strips, and razor refills. On Tuesday, November 26, Sue wrote an email to her sister in which she lamented that the divorce was going to take at least three more weeks to get going. It was going to take at least three more weeks to serve Rick with divorce papers because of her attorney being in trial. And then also, obviously, this is over the holidays. We're getting very close to Thanksgiving at this point. She said that Rick was getting stranger and more secretive by the day, and she loathed spending time with him. She said that she was not going to be able to bear to spend the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday with him. So she had booked him, only him, a ticket to St. Louis. And she told him that she was going to stay in San Antonio with the boys and that he should go visit his family because things aren't going well and it would be a break for both of them. Please go away. <laughs> yes. And unfortunately for Sue, and she's telling this to her sister, Rick canceled his flight and he told her that he was going to be staying in San Antonio as well. So she was like, fine, well, if you're staying, then I'm going. So she made plans to take the kids to Amarillo, Texas, which is where her best friend lived. So she's like, if you want to stay here, you stay here. But me and the boys are not staying with you. So I'm going to take the kids and we're going to drive to Amarillo. And that's where we're going to do Thanksgiving. So good luck doing whatever you want here. But as it got closer to Thanksgiving, she started having second thoughts. Now, this is corroborated by 
some of her friends and her sister who said, as it got closer to the day that she was supposed to leave, Rick's behavior was becoming increasingly erratic. And one of her friends worried that he would hurt her or the boys if she tried to leave for the holiday. Okay. So Sue knew that she still had to play everything close to the vest until she could secure housing and custody. So she told, I think, at least two or three friends that she had reconsidered going to Amarillo. She said that she was feeling more positively because she was able to see her divorce attorney just before 6 p.m. on the Monday before Thanksgiving and that she had already signed an affidavit that would allow her attorney to schedule a hearing for early December. So she feels like the ball is finally getting rolling and now she is just weeks away from freedom. So that night on that Monday before Thanksgiving, she went home, she made dinner, she tucked her boys into bed. And it seems like, according to everyone she talked to during that day, that she was pretty optimistic about her future. But sometime before putting her sons to bed and the next morning when she was due at work on Tuesday, Susan Smith McFarland disappeared. That same evening, neighbors walking their dogs noticed Rick cleaning out the family minivan. They also saw him roll a shop vac into the house. At 4 a.m., a neighbor noticed light coming from Sue's bathroom window, which seemed really odd because Sue was an early riser, but not 4 a.m. early riser. And it had been on all night, which wasn't Sue's style. She went to bed usually at like 9 and woke up like between 5 and 6 a.m. I love the nosy neighbors. The nosy neighbors knew. They were like, this seems odd. In fact, I think it was a mother and a daughter who lived nearby. And one of them was like, I'm so concerned about Sue. Why is her light still on? And the other one was like, well, why don't you go over and ask? And she's like, I'm not going over there. Because everyone was really, really like Sue, but they were really creeped out by Rick. So it was a weird relationship between the McFarlands and all the neighbors because it's like, we want to help her. We like her. But we are very weirded out by this guy. Totally. There was another neighbor, too, that heard him using a circular saw in the middle of the night as well. Yeah, not a good sign. No. Rick began to call Sue's friends early the next morning, claiming that Sue had left to run errands sometime after 10 p.m. on that Monday. Come on, Rick. You can do better than that. Well, apparently this friend of hers had had a birthday. Now, they had all had a big surprise party over the weekend. So it doesn't make any sense that on the Monday night that it was her actual birthday that she would go over there. They had already celebrated. They had had a huge party on Saturday night. So he had called this friend and he's like, so where's Sue? Is she with you? Did she tie one on and spend the night? And she's like, what are you talking about? We all saw each other Saturday. And he's like, oh, well, she left last night around 10 with a bottle of wine. So I thought she was maybe going to your house to celebrate your birthday. And this friend was like, absolutely not. I went to bed early. I didn't see Sue. Well, out in rural Bear County, which, by the way, if you guys are listening, it's like Bear or Bear, but it is actually spelled B-E-X-A-R, which I feel like this county is just designed to screw podcasters up. <laughs> Bexer. I'm like, I know you're waiting. Yeah, you're waiting for me to say Bexer, and then you can send me a review that says you said Bexer, not Bear. <laughs> <laughs> but I got it. She does her research. <laughs> yes. So out in rural Bear County, a man named Gill noticed two suspicious vehicles racing around the country roads the next day. There was a two-tone Suburban that we talked about at the beginning, as well as a black SUV that he had never seen before in this area. 
On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, he also noticed smoke rising from an abandoned farmhouse. In the wee early hours of Thanksgiving morning, just before 3 a.m., a patrol officer came across a black Ford Explorer parked in the street. Now, at this point, he thought it was probably just teenagers parking somewhere and making out. Making out. Yeah. (laughs) But he said that when he flashed his high beams behind the car, he expected like, you know, two heads to pop up and, you know, maybe somebody to roll down a window, but nothing happened. So he got out, he got his flashlight and he looked at the car and it looked like the car had been in this area for a couple days, but nothing was awry. There was no sign of foul play. The car looked perfectly fine. It was clear that it hadn't been driven in a little while, but the door was open and the keys were in the ignition. So that's odd, of course. I mean, I'm thinking it's likely that he parked this car somewhere hoping somebody was going to steal it and get rid of it for him because this was a few streets over from where they lived, I believe. Okay. So it wasn't terribly far from where they lived. It wasn't like in their direct neighborhood, but it was pretty close by. The police officer ended up running the plates and finding out that it belonged to Richard and Susan McFarland. So then dispatch called the McFarland house to notify them about the whereabouts of their vehicle. The fact that it was found, it still has the keys in the ignition. They hadn't reported it stolen. So it's kind of like, do you know where your car is? Do you know why it's over here? Do you want to come get it? And Rick, of course, answered the phone and he confused the heck out of the dispatcher because he's like, oh, you found the car in Amarillo? And they're like, no, it's right here where you live. It's not that far from where the address is registered to, but we need you to come get the keys there at the police station. Now he's on the phone. It is early Thanksgiving morning. His wife has ostensibly been missing since Monday night. And you would think that this would be the place where he would say, wait a minute, that's my wife's car. She's supposed to be in Amarillo. Where did you find the car? Hmm, I got to call my wife or even mention that he hadn't seen his wife who should have been driving this car. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. He says none of it. He doesn't say anything. They said, well, was the car missing? He's like, nope. He doesn't say anything. When they're asking him why he thought the car was in Amarillo, he's like, I thought my wife was in Amarillo. But he doesn't follow up that with, oh, my God, if she's not in Amarillo, where is she? He's not doing a very good job of being worried. Everything about this is strange right from the beginning. And then the other strange thing is, is that he doesn't go right away. He waits 15 hours to go into the police station. And this was not a babysitting issue because he routinely left the kids in the care of the oldest son. Okay. So this is just him not wanting to go for 15 hours. And by the time he does go in much later... He goes to claim Susan's car keys as well as finally report her missing. Kill two birds with one stone, you know? Exactly. Why would he go to the police station if it's just his wife missing? Yeah. And then the weird thing was, too, was that the detective that came out to help him was like, here, look, like, I'll give you keys back and I'll take you to the car. But I want to talk about the whereabouts of your wife. When's the time last time you saw her? We need to talk about the car. We need to talk about... You know, when's the last time you spoke to her? Is there anyone she could be with? Do we need to call someone? And he was like, um, I have kids at home. I just realized I have to go. And they're like, well, sir, if we don't do this interview, we're not going to give you the keys. And so he's like, that's fine. I'll come back the next day. I got to go. Bye. 
And I'm like, this is very weird that he wouldn't want to start the search for his wife and be proactive about this. And he didn't even wait around to get the keys. Yeah. So that same detective was friends with one of the McFarland's neighbors. So he thought the whole thing was really weird. And so he called the neighbor and was like, I guess some a weird bead on your neighbors. And this happened. And I think your neighbor's missing. And I don't know. It's pretty wild. I just want to let you know because I know you're in that hood. And she was like, do not give him the car keys. Do not give him the car keys. And he was like, what? And she's like, where are the children? And he's like, the children are still with him. And she's like, then he absolutely did something to her because there is no way Sue would go anywhere without her children. She would not leave them and just disappear. That's not who she is. So I'm telling you right now, you need to process that car. You need to make sure that he doesn't get his hands on it to destroy any evidence because I'm 100% sure he did something to her. Wow. Yep. And when Susan's friends and family finally heard about her disappearance, they also echoed this sentiment. Sue's sister Anne became incredibly alarmed and frustrated when Rick called her to tell her that Sue was missing, but refused to answer any basic questions about her sister's last whereabouts or where could she be or where she had gone or why he would think that she just up and left. And he hung up on her when she was asking him all of these questions. So then she tried to call back and he's not answering the phone. They don't live anywhere near each other. So she eventually called his mother, Mona, to get answers, being like, did you know that Sue is missing? And do you know any more details? Because Rick isn't telling me what's going on and I need to know. And apparently Mona said very coldly, oh, of course we know Susan disappeared. We think she's having an affair and ran off with her lover. Oh. Her sister was so pissed. She was like, an affair? Where would she have the time to have an affair when she's busy taking care of your son and your grandchildren, like, by herself? She doesn't have time for an affair. Meanwhile, back in the McFarland's neighborhood, a woman named Harriet Wells dropped by her house, which was up for sale. So this woman, Harriet, used to live right around the corner or, like, kind of like kitty corner from the McFarland's, and she had already purchased a home that was in the next neighborhood. So it was still close by. She was still kind of part of the community, but she wasn't right on the street anymore. However, she hadn't sold her old house. So her old house was empty and they were showing it. And she would drop by every once in a while just to make sure everything looked good for the realtors and critters aren't getting in there and etc. So yes, she comes by and she opens her garage door to her old house and she makes a rather unsettling discovery. Parked in her closed garage was an unknown two-toned Suburban. So this is disconcerting for her because that means somebody would have had to enter her home through a locked gate, enter the garage, move several things. They were in her home for a while because she had been storing a bunch of stuff in the garage while moving. So she's like, okay, they had to move a table. They had to move all of this stuff to get this huge SUV in here. And she immediately suspected that Rick was behind it. Wow. Immediately. She's like, I don't know how he got a key. I don't know how he got in, but he did somehow. And it's got to be him. He's the only person who would do some weird shit like this. And so she got in the Suburban to start looking for clues. And she found a AAA card and a credit card, both in Rick's name. Oh, my God. What an idiot. Left his AAA card and his credit card in this Suburban Honey. in a neighbor's house. 
She also discovered a number of other alarming items that had also just appeared in her garage. Obviously, she hadn't put them there. Three empty gas containers, two bottles of insecticide, two big bags of charcoal, paper towels, and a bottle of cleanser. Hmm. So Harriet immediately called the police. So she called her husband and her husband's like, well, if you think Rick did it, maybe you should call Rick. And she's like, I'm not calling Rick. Like something is really screwed up here. I'm calling the police, obviously. Yeah. Thanks, husband. Yeah. And it was very weird. Like, so she called the police and they tried to go to his home, but he didn't answer the door. And then so she's watching the house. And when they came back to her house, all of a sudden he like peeled out like got in the car and like just peeled out. So he had been home, obviously. So what car at this point is he driving? So they have a minivan. They have a Windstar. So that is the vehicle I believe he was using at this point. So he leaves and everyone's like, that's really weird. And then I think like the cops might have gone at that point and they said they would come back later. Then he comes back and Harriet sees him take a circular saw out of his garage and start running it along his driveway. Like he's making a line, like he's cutting a line in his pavement, which makes absolutely no sense. He's just damaging the blade, obviously. And she's like, oh my God, he's getting rid of evidence. Maybe he's wearing it down so that there's not any evidence on the blade. So this is obviously very concerning, which she also called the police back and told them what he was doing and that he was home. What are they doing? What are the police doing right now? Like, well, they came back at that point. Like, dude, they were also trying to track down who owned the Suburban at this point as well, because it was not registered to Rick. Rick did not own this Suburban. So his credentials are in there, these cards that say that Rick was using the car, but he was not registered to this car at all. So they have to figure out whose suburban this is and how did Rick get it. Well, this is kind of a true crime fun fact because detectives quickly found out that the suburban belonged to none other than a producer on the hit TV show America's Most Wanted. What? No, the plot thickens. So this guy was still on vacation because this is the weekend, I believe, after Thanksgiving at this point. Okay. And so they're trying to call this guy and they call his home phone and then it goes through to his cell phone and he's like, oh, it's like really loud and they can't hear him. And they're trying to be like, where is your Suburban? (laughs) And he's like, I can't hear you. And this like loud noise happens. And it was because he was at SeaWorld and he had just been splashed by Shamu. I mean, not cool, but. (laughs) I mean, this whole thing is just so late 90s, early 2000s, like SeaWorld, America's Most Wanted, I cannot. Windstar. Uh, yep, this is like our preteen high school era right here. Basically, when they finally talk to this guy, he's like, my Suburban's at home. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, we just found your Suburban in this random person's garage and we're trying to figure out who put it there and how they got it. And he's like, no, that doesn't make any sense because my Suburban is at home. So they go over to this guy's house and they find out that his Suburban is in his garage. Somebody had taken the license plates and switched them. So they were reading the license plate tag on the Suburban that's stolen. And this is in Texas? It's all in Texas. This is in the same area. So he's in San Diego on vacation. 
but he lives in the general vicinity of the McFarlands. So he's like right in the same area. Of, it's like a suburb of San Antonio. They're all in the same burb. So they're like, whoa, okay. So now we've got a mystery suburban that is not Ron Zimmerman's suburban, but the plates were switched. And they're like, how did your suburban get in the garage? And he explains that he had on his way to SeaWorld, apparently, he had stopped at a local Texaco station where a man who only identified himself as Baloo, B-A-L-L-E-W, Baloo, told him that he lived nearby and that he would drive him to the airport and then return his Suburban to his garage where he lived. I don't know if he was doing this for money or for a favor or maybe Ron Zimmerman thought he worked at the Texaco station and it was part of the package. I have no idea. But he had apparently returned the Suburban just with a different Suburban's plates. Like I said, it's unclear whether he thought this man worked at a Texaco station, but Zimmerman was able to tell them what Texaco station it was, obviously. And lo and behold, it was the very same Texaco station that was owned by Richard Clemmer. Shade. The Richard Clemmer, yep, who had scammed senior citizens and had been convicted by a jury of his peers, which included the now missing Susan McFarland. So that's obviously extremely suspicious. At this point, the police were pretty darn convinced that Rick had killed his wife. So how did Richard Clemmer factor in this? Were they wrong? And it wasn't Rick. It was Richard. Or had the convicted criminal with an axe to grind teamed up with the jilted husband? Yeah, that's what I'm leaning towards. Yeah, were they working together? So obviously they need to talk to Richard Clemmer. Well, according to Richard Clemmer, he didn't even know that Rick McFarland was related to Sue McFarland at the beginning. Apparently, Rick had used a fake name. Now, this Texaco station did gas and everything else that gas stations do, but they also would allow people to put their cars out for sale in the lot. And so you could like pay a small bit for them to basically advertise and hold your car while you're trying to sell it. And what they would do is they kept all the keys for the cars that they were trying to sell. And people could come in and sign out a car to take it on a test drive. Okay. This is a wild system for <laughs> test driving cars, used cars. But that was apparently the system at this Texaco that Richard Clemmer owned. So he said that there was this guy who only identified himself as Mark Lynn who had test-driven a Jeep as well as a Suburban that had gone missing. So by the time Mark... Like took it when they took the test drive, they like took it? Yes, exactly. Okay. So he had stolen the Suburban, this guy Marklin. Now, he did not know that this was Richard, who was married to Sue, who had been on his jury. So obviously he's not in cahoots with him. He's not in cahoots. It seems very likely that Rick was trying to stir the pot, at least muddy the waters enough that all of a sudden there's somebody with a very strong motive that's also involved in this. So much time on his hands. If they hadn't found the Suburban, if he had somehow successfully gotten rid of the Suburban, it would have been even more concerning because it would say that a Suburban belonging to this guy, or maybe they found it later with not with Rick's documents in it, then it could be like, well, that was the at the Texaco station where this guy with an axe to grind. Yeah, but it was the wrong plates. Like, why did he swap the yes. plates? Yes. 
I don't know. I just, everything that he does doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's like just trying to add more confusion, but like that didn't. It's backfiring, especially when you leave evidence all over the car that you were there. So he said by the time Mark, who Richard Clemmer at this point knew was actually Rick McFarland because he saw it on the news. This blew up all over the local media that a woman was missing. It's the same thing, like especially white mothers or attractive blonde young white women. You know, it's like it's like missing even more than murdered is such a media draw. Yeah. And this got very big in this area of Texas and people were volunteering to look for her. Yeah. It was all over the local news. And so he saw this and I do think he connected her to potentially being on his jury because, you know, for a week or more, he was looking at the jury and she was right there. So he kind of recognized her face. And then he also recognized that this guy, this Mark, was actually Rick McFarland, the husband of the missing woman. So by the time Mark got back in touch with him saying, hey, I didn't steal your Suburban. It was actually my wife who took it out. He came back into the Texaco station with some flimsy excuse about where the Suburban was. And he had ripped out a page of the book that like was the log book saying which car you're taking out and what your name is. So it's like he like asked him for something in the back and then he like ripped the page out and shoved it in his pants. Oh, my God. So now Richard Clammer's like, shit, when he does that, he's like, first of all, this guy's guilty. Second of all, this is going to look really bad for me if I don't go right to the police. Yep. 100 percent. This was all happening all at the same time. And I don't know if Richard Clemmer went to the police first or whether they came to him first. But regardless, they end up having a conversation pretty soon after all of these discoveries. And Richard Clemmer's like, here's all I know. He was lying. He stole this page. And they're like, okay, well, he was at the police station. They're like, call him. Do you have his number? And he said, yes, because he wanted me to call him so that we could get our story straight. But I have nothing to get straight with this guy. And he's like, they're like, okay, we're going to call him on a recorded line. And you're going to prove that you're innocent of this because we're going to have you asking him questions and being like, what the hell are you talking about? And then hopefully we can catch him. And Richard Clemmer's like, I got nothing to hide. Let's call this motherfucker. So they ended up calling him. And at first, I guess Rick didn't answer a couple times. Then he finally did. And he's on a recorded line. And they did catch Rick trying to manipulate Clemmer into getting their stories straight. He kept saying, it doesn't look good for you either if our stories aren't straight. That's what he's trying to say to this guy, Clemmer. He thinks he's so smart. Yeah, he thinks this guy's got another motive too. So I'm going to basically blackmail him into getting on the same wavelength with me because he's got something to lose. So he's trying to get him to lie about the timeline of when he took the Suburban out and say that it was his wife who took the Suburban out and not him. And Clemmer's like, no, I don't think so. No, I'm not going to do that. And he just keeps saying like, no, because then I could get in trouble for lying and I don't have anything to lie about. Why wouldn't I just tell them the truth? And then he's even like, hey, also, did you by chance just maybe accidentally rip a page out of our logbook when you were in the other day? Could you maybe return that because people's phone numbers are on there and I need somebody to return a car and I got to like chase them down. So I need that phone number and, you know, cause it's all written down in the logbook. We don't digitize anything so maybe you could just bring it back he's like oh, i don't know what you're talking about and he's like i'm pretty sure you do because it was there when you came in and then it was not when you left yeah and he's like oh yeah yeah maybe i took that by accident but i threw it out so i don't have it anymore sorry 
So he's on the recording saying all of this. And then he basically like starts wheeling and dealing in his poor salesman way where he's like, you know what? Let's just get on the same page and I'll buy you a steak after all this is over. Buy you a steak? Wow. Yeah, he is so Weasley. And then when he's like, yeah, I don't think I feel comfortable with that. He's like, well, what are you comfortable with? What do you think you would feel comfortable saying? And then he says, okay, well, if you won't get on the same page with me, will you at least find out what the police found in the Suburban? Because they're not telling me what they found in the Suburban and seeing as it technically is owned by you while you're selling it, like maybe you could tell me what they found? And he's like, no. And then I guess like he hung up or the line disconnected or something. And the police were like, you know what? We have enough. Good. But also that overly familiar thing, like he doesn't know this guy from anywhere. And he's going in there with this attitude, like this guy owes him something, like he needs to do this for him. It's very bizarre. Speaking of what they found in the Suburban, which was very interesting to Rick, of course, and I hope you all, they found blood evidence in the stolen Suburban, as well as dirt, brush, and weeds that were stuck in the grill and in the undercarriage of the vehicle. And it looked as though the vehicle had been off-roading or had been driving through some sort of rural field. They also found these Italian ice wrappers in the vehicle. And this was notable because Rick was known to be obsessed with this brand of Italian ices. Everyone in the neighborhood knew that he was constantly eating them. And when the police had gone to question him around the time that the Suburban was found in Harriet's garage, he had actually been eating several as they interviewed him. He's like opening up one and continuing to eat them throughout the interview. That's a treat. That's not something that you just eat all day. That's like rude to the Italian ice company and Italians worldwide. Said like such a mom. That is a treat and it's special because it's a treat. We had Italian ice in our basement fridge. I love Italian ice. That was my Alden craving. Oh, food is great. It's great. Uh, it's really it's hot a treat. Right now. I want Italian ice. It it's is. A and treat. you know what? After we do this episode, I'm going to go treat myself to an Italian ice for an episode well done. <laughs> what a psycho. But he's like eating them while he's, like he's eating driving them, them. One after the other. And so they know because they interviewed him while he was eating this particular brand of Italian ice. And then they find these wrappers in the Suburban, which isn't like exactly like the big bingo bango no. bingo bango because we already have his credit card so it's not like ooh and we need like Hercule Poirot to figure this one out but it's weird it's a weird one freaking weird yeah so they find these italian ice wrappers and then they ended up getting a warrant to search the McFarland residence so they're like he's definitely hiding something in that house and unfortunately they found evidence of blood in the master bathroom for the most part, but a little bit in the downstairs like front hall. It leads them to believe that the attack had occurred in the master bathroom as that was where most of the blood was and that perhaps he had dragged her or taken her out the door. And that's why there was some blood found in the entryway as well. And that's not all. Rick had scratches and cuts down his neck and the tip of his little finger was missing. I wonder if she bit it off while they were struggling. <sighs> Rick said to the police when they asked him how he had sustained these injuries, 
that he had fallen while jogging. Were you also eating an Italian ice while you were jogging, <laughs> sir? Like you can't this guy's jog? not in the best physical conditions. So they're like, are you a regular jogger? Do you jog every day? And he's like, I don't know, like, you know, once or twice a week. And they went and canvassed the neighbors. And they were like, we have literally not once in our entire lives seen that man jogging. He has never done so much as a trot in all of the days that he has lived here. He is not a jogger. He is not into the new found thing of jogging. So they're like, okay, now we have obviously wounds that she was trying to fight him. There's blood evidence. They've got the suburban. The pieces are coming together. And they believed that Rick, because he was hacking into her email, he was hacking into her voicemail. He very likely knew that she had had a meeting with her divorce attorney and that they were setting a hearing date for early December. And that night, it seemed that he had confronted her in her bathroom, likely when she was brushing her teeth, washing her face, getting ready for bed because she had already put the boys to bed, we know for sure, because the boys were interviewed. And that was the last time they saw their mother. And whether he had it planned or not, which it seems likely he did have it planned because he had gone to test drive the Jeep and the Suburban at several times before this. And everyone said that nobody knew that they were in the market for a new car. This seemed like it was part of the plan. Like he had been thinking about this for a while and he was looking to implicate Clemmer, it would seem. And so it looks like they got into an altercation and then Rick killed Susan, likely in the master bathroom. It appeared he had transported her body perhaps after cutting it up with a circular saw, which the neighbors heard. And maybe in the minivan, maybe he went out to a third location where he had taken the Suburban because he had been thoroughly cleaning the minivan that evening. And I guess there were some yeah. like car pads missing too. So they're thinking that he must have transferred the body somewhere. And then nobody saw the fire, which they didn't know at the time. They didn't know about the fire. The fires didn't start until the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So all they know at this point, because they don't know about the fire yet, because Gil Medean hasn't called in yet, is that he obviously then transferred her body somewhere rural and likely burned the corpse in some fashion because they have that charcoal, they have the gas cans. Yeah. So that's what they're thinking. But Sue and Rick did not own any, they don't own a farm. They don't own like a country estate. They don't own anything that would be a place where he would feel comfortable going. They have no close family or friends that own anything drivable that would be considered farmish or rural. So now that means that Rick has dumped her body somewhere that has no connection to him. And this is Texas. So they have to look everywhere. So basically anywhere he can drive to within two to three hours, they're going to have to look. So this ends up being a huge search. They called in the Texas Rangers. I mean, I think that the FBI might have gotten involved at one point. They also tapped the Texas ECU search or ECUS search, something like that. It's about like equestrian, it's like horses. Uh And I guess this is an organization that does mounted search and recovery organization so they can go all over rural areas because they're on horses, like places that a lot of cars can't go clearly. There were just hundreds of sniffer dogs and horses, helicopters, all sorts of all-terrain vehicles, as well as 
ground-penetrating search technology they were using to try to find Sue. And they, of course, because of the evidence, did not believe, unfortunately, that she was alive any longer. The search went on for something like 53 days. Crazy. They had hundreds of volunteers. So this was becoming very well known in the area at this point. And they found a few dead dogs. They found some dead deer, but there was no Susan. They just kept hitting dead end after dead end. That was until they received a call from the stepson of a man named Gil Medean, who lived in rural Southeast Bear County. And he reported that he had seen two suspicious cars. So likely he had also been staking out the place using Sue's SUV first. Mm -hmm. And then the suspicious two-tone suburban that matched the description of the one found in Rick's neighbor's garage. Because they had also put on the news that the disappearance could be linked to this particular stolen suburban. This very identifiable suburban. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, this was one of many, many leads, and they had chased them all down. So there wasn't a lot of hope here. But he said that he had also seen smoke coming from this abandoned farmhouse near where he lived, which was a known area. It was not a great area. It was kind of like where people went to dump trash or other yeah, stuff, yeah, like yeah. or like people went to do drugs. So this was not a great area. So it wasn't crazy that there was smoke coming out of it. And it wasn't crazy that Gil didn't try to like go see what was going on because it's not not a great area. But luckily, this would be the lead that would change the course of the investigation. Texas Ranger Sean Parker and Terrell Hills investigator Boyd Wedding followed up on the lead on January 14th, 2003. They tread over hard scrabble grass and dirt, dodging garbage and all sorts of abandoned things at this old farmhouse, including a stolen 1988 Chevy Camaro and a pile of 10-week-old puppies. Oh. I know. I was like, what happened to the puppies? But neither of these things, nor did a bunch of other stuff that was abandoned or left there have anything to do with Sue's disappearance until Ranger Palmer then picked up a whiff of the undeniable, and if you're a homicide detective, all too recognizable smell of decomposition. In, it was basically, it said it was like a, some sort of car truck thing that had been converted into a pull trailer. He and Investigator Wedding discovered a pile of burned rubble that included human rib bones, an arm bone, and a skull, all cracked and browned from what looked like hours of being in a fire. They also found a pocket knife and a picture frame that had come from the McFarland household, as well as Italian ice wrappers. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. That was not a joke. They found Italian ice wrappers of the same brand at the scene where they found Susan's body. Talk about leaving crumbs. I'm also wondering how melty those Italian ice wrappers were that they got all the way out to this rural area that was roughly 25 minutes away from their house. And then he's burning his wife's body and snacking on these Italian ices. Sick. They have to be syrup by then. Sick. So they found the Italian ice wrappers, which they knew about because of what was found in the Suburban. And they would also ultimately be able to match the plant material that was found on the grill and the undercarriage of the Suburban with 
what was surrounding this abandoned farmhouse, this field. Oh, my God. These detectives had to have been like, are you for real? I mean, thank goodness that they got that tip and they were able to find her because there was so much evidence Mm -hmm. here. I mean, not only that, the police also uncovered a wedding ring and the wedding ring had an inscription that read RMM to SBS, Richard McFarland to Susan Burris Smith. The wedding ring is in a ton of pictures because they had the incredibly large wedding. Yeah. I mean, it was just so obvious at this point. A forensic dentist would also confirm that the remains were Susan's based on her dental records. After confirming that Susan's three boys were safe and away from Rick, because, I mean, with his psychological profile, it was very clear to everyone involved that this could very quickly turn into a family annihilator situation. Yes, 100%. So they made sure the boys were in school and they had already set up with, I believe it was one of Sue's close friends, that they could go to her house. So they knew that he was far away from them when they arrested him and brought him in. Now, they originally brought him in just for questioning and to hold him under suspicion of his wife's death. But then when they did the autopsy, they were able to charge him. So Susan's skull, torso, and a partial arm and leg bone were recovered. And the medical examiner was able to determine that Susan had suffered from a very deep skull fracture, as well as broken ribs and a fractured spinal column. Jesus. These injuries had occurred when Susan was alive. They could tell. So this was not something that he did something to her body after postmortem. These are the things that killed her, ultimately. The medical examiner determined that Susan had died as the result of homicidal violence, specifically blunt force trauma. They believe that Rick had beat his wife to death in the master bedroom. On January 17th, 2003, at 3 p.m., Rick McFarland was officially charged with murder by injury. On February 3rd, the police were granted another search warrant for the McFarland residence because a previous owner of the house had gotten in touch with the police and said, if you guys are searching the house, there's a secret crawl space that no one knows about. Oh, my God. Amazing that they called. Yes. And so maybe you should look there if you're looking for more evidence. And so they got a warrant. So they got to go back. And they did not end up finding anything in the crawl space. It turns out that this crawl space was so private that apparently the McFarlands didn't even know about it. Yeah, yeah. Their own house. But while they were there, they were able to look for other things within the scope of their search. And they ended up finding a handwritten document on Rick's office. And based on this document, it appeared that before Susan's remains were discovered, Rick was planning on claiming that Susan had gone girled herself. So he wrote in this document that they found in his handwriting, framing theory. He titled it. Wow. Wow. (laughs) He wrote, she planted evidence before abandoning her family. Motive one, to divert attention to Rick, to get the police to only search for her locally. Using their names? (laughs) Yes. Motive two, to eliminate the stigma of a woman who did the unthinkable, dash, abandoned her children, period. Motive three, revenge on Rick for not moving out the previous year when Susan asked. Motive 
four. Her dad was an FBI agent for 35 years. She must have picked up extensive knowledge about crime scenes from the stories that her father brought home. What his defense was going to be? She set me up and she's out there living her best life. Did he bring it to court? Did he bring in the paper? No, they found it when they arrested him. Because when they arrested him, he didn't know yet that her body had been found. So he was apparently just working on this document in his office for his potential defense, which is, I mean, this is from late 2002, early 2003 that he wrote this. And Gone Girl, the novel, wasn't published till 2012. So I'm like, if Rick had just focused his energies on writing fiction instead of killing his wife, he could have been a New York Times bestseller. He could have been Gillian Flynn. (laughs) He could have been Gillian Flynn. He was writing Gone Girl before Gone Girl. He would have been able to work with David Fincher. You know what? This is a lesson for all of us. We just got to choose where we focus our energy and our skill sets. Reznor would have done the soundtrack (laughs) for his film, for the feature film based off of his novel. (laughs) Yep. Missed opportunities. It was a huge missed opportunity for everyone involved. Susan would have at least gotten a little uh, alimony and child support, too. So Rick was just as despicable and impossible to get along with behind bars as he had been on the outside. I can imagine. Multiple cellmates demanded reassignment. There was one guy that said, if you do not get him out of my cell and out of, you know, like his exercise group or whatever, who goes out to the yard together, I will kill him. I'm telling you right now, I will kill him. He is that insufferable. So I think he ended up having to be in like whatever private custody is because everyone hated him. Everyone could not get along with this guy. It's crazy when murderers don't want to hang out with you. (laughs) It's like, not that guy. He also, while he was in jail, he attempted to force his brother into taking custody of his children against his will. So he was like, I don't want Susan's family to get the boys. I don't really think you get a choice of that, sir. His brother had a family and their own children. And obviously these children are very traumatized and they're going to need a lot of care and support. And so his brother and his wife very wisely said, we don't have the ability or the expertise to be good guardians of your children at this point after what they've gone through. And we're going to say no. And he's like, was trying to basically like blackmail or bully his brother into taking the kids. He's like, just say that you'll take them and it'll be temporary. And you only have to have them for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, you can foist them off on somebody else or find a good Christian family for them. The brother's like, I have to put my foot down. Absolutely not. I'm not going to give these traumatized children a home only to kick them out three months later. Insane. His brother's a good person. Yeah. His brother was a voice of reason in this. Now, his parents were not as reasonable insofar as, which again, we talk about that with parents. It's kind of hard to say, but they were standing by their son no matter what. They were supporting him publicly, completely fully. And in recorded phone conversations while he's in prison and notes, you could see that he is also bullying his parents, trying to get them to essentially give up their retirement fund to sell all of their assets to convince their other sons to sell their assets to raise this very high bond that he had. And they were like, we just can't do it. We can't make it work. We're going to be left with nothing. And then if you leave, we don't get the money back. And they knew their son well enough to be like, he might just jump bail. Yeah. And so while they were trying to raise the funds, because at first they were trying to figure out if they could just do it, his parents do it on their own. Well, they're 
going through their funds, they find a bank account that they thought they had closed, that they had not, and that Rick had actually used his father's social security number to gain access to this particular checking account and had subsequently stolen or forged over $60,000 in checks, $100,000 in today's money of debt that his parents had to repay because it was in his dad's name. So needless to say, he did not get bail money from them. Rick remained in jail. But they did stand by him. They publicly said that they supported him. There was a lot of weird shit Mona was saying to people. Like, I think it was some of Sue's friends or her family reported that Mona was like, well, he had his reasons. If he killed her, he had his reasons. So publicly, they're supporting him. And Rick would need all of the support he could get because there was just piles and piles of physical evidence against him. The district attorney who was trying the case was also the same guy who had prosecuted Alan Blackthorne for the murder of his ex, Sheila, the mother of the quadruplets we did back in episode 84. Wow. So he's a really good prosecutor, too. So they've got a great district attorney. They have a ton of physical evidence. I mean, they had the recording of Rick on the phone with Richard Clemmer. They had the blood evidence in the house and the suburban. They had the plant material that was consistent between the dump scene and the suburban, but also they had found a burr, like a plant burr, on one of Rick's socks that matched the burrs that were at the burn scene. And also, this is very sad. Apparently, the eldest son had made a statement that he had witnessed his father cleaning some blood, or he had I think he had found a bloody earring that had belonged to his mother in the house. But, and I really, I do appreciate the prosecutor here, even though the child said that they decided early on that they were not going to traumatize any of the boys any further by making them testify. I think that's great. They had enough evidence. Yes. They didn't need yeah. to traumatize these boys by making them speak against their father while he's staring at them. They were swimming in evidence. Yes. With that evidence just all around him, like you said, he's drowning in it. They're swimming in it. Rick and his attorneys decided to take a plea deal. Ugh. Rick was sentenced to 40 years in prison, and he would not be eligible for parole for at least 20 of those 40 years. So Rick took the deal. He was up for parole earlier this year because this was all going down in 2003. It does not appear that he was given parole because he is still incarcerated as of today. Whoa. It's like a bummer. Also, if you guys have more interest in the full story, I suggest you check out Gone Forever by Diane Fanning. She talks a lot about the kids, although she did give them different names. So they're pseudonyms, which is why I didn't even bother saying their names in this episode, because they did wish to remain private. It was actually very devastating. There were several relatives that were for many reasons unable due to age and sickness, because as you recall, Sue was the youngest sibling by quite a large margin. Her parents were deceased. Her father, I believe, died during this whole thing. And there was like a cousin at one point that could take them. But then something happened. It was devastating. These poor boys, it took them a very long time to find stable homes. And eventually, the eldest ended up with a wonderful foster mother. She was a single mother who had advanced degrees in child psychology and trauma. 
And he had a very happy life. And the two younger boys were also ultimately adopted by a foster family that loved them and were equipped to be the right type of parents for these traumatized children. So they have new names. They have new lives. I don't believe they have any contact with Richard whatsoever. Good. I think that was one of the, the harder parts to read about this is all of the effects of murder and all of the waves of people that it changes the course of their lives forever and ever. And at the end of Diane Fanning's book, she stressed the danger of the time between which a woman or any abused partner decides to leave, but when they are not fully physically gone yet or officially divorced. And I think it's always a good thing for us to remember this and talk about it and keep it top of mind. She wrote, the fact is that the most dangerous time for any woman or partner is this transition period from when they decide to leave through the months of the separation. That is when many women are battered. That is when many women die. Statistics show that separated women are three times more likely than divorced women and 25 times more likely than married women still living with their husbands to be victimized. Jeez. In 2002, the year of Susan's death, 117 women in Texas were killed by a husband or a boyfriend. Oh my God. While women are less likely than men to be victims of violent crime overall, they are five to eight times more likely to be victimized by their intimate partner. On average, more than three women are murdered by those men in this country every single day. Oh, it gives me chills. Yes, it's another sobering reminder to take care of your friends and loved ones if they're going through separations. And of course, stay vigilant in your own relationships. Always feel free to ask for help. I do have one. It's not technically a Wikipedia fun fact. Well, then you don't get your song. So it's like a gone forever from the book fun fact, like gone forever fun fact. It doesn't really have the same jingle, but I'll do like a book Jesse read fun fact. <laughs> That's great. That's perfect. Thank you. This is an actually a very fun fact. On January 2nd, which was 12 days before Susan's body was recovered, a Scottish psychic named Christine Toomey got in touch with a friend of Susan's. I guess this friend of Susan's had posted something for psychics being like, I'm desperately trying to find my friend and we're trying to do everything. If you have any, you get any reads on her, please let us know. So this Scottish psychic, Christine, got in touch with her friend and she said that Sue was a very strong and powerful energy, that she was very strongly trying to communicate with her. Christine said that Sue was showing her that finances had been a big motivating factor in the murder and that all the police would find of her was charred bones, which also is pretty eerie because when they searched her workplace or her house, I can't remember where, the book Sue had been reading was The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold, which is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's about a murdered child who is telling the story of the investigation, I believe, of her own murder. And so that was very eerie. And so she said that they would only find charred bones. The psychic went on to say that Sue was in a better place. She was doing well, and she was with an older woman that she described in a way that it was clear to the friend was Sue's mother. Oh. 
she said that Sue very strongly told this friend not to go to the McFarland house and not to be alone with Rick under any circumstances. She said, do not go there no matter what you think. Don't. She said Rick was dangerous. And obviously the friend said, we're searching for her body. We need to find these. Even if it's just bones, we need to find them. Can Sue tell us where she is? And Christine said that Sue was telling her. Now, she's Scottish, too, so she doesn't know no, yeah, geography of Texas over here. She said that Sue was telling her that they would find her body either 25 miles or 25 minutes from her home. She wasn't sure. When investigators found Sue's body only 12 days later, it was located 15 miles from the McFarland house, exactly a 25-minute drive. Oh, my goodness. I know. Do you have chills? Yes. Who is this psychic? Christine Toomey. It's spelled Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, and then Toomey, T-O-O-M-Y, I think. Wow. Yeah. So I thought I was wanted to save that one for the end because I know so many times in these investigations, like obviously you can't no, count no, 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 no. Yeah. on the random psychic coming forward. But this time you could have. You absolutely could have. It was everything. And I guess she said Sue said that it happened extremely fast. Well, the medical examiner's injuries talked about how brutal this attack must have been. And clearly she had fought because he had those yeah. defensive wounds. In her mind, it had happened extremely quickly. Crazy. Yeah. So we are back. I Hopefully you guys didn't miss us at all because we had those pre-recorded. We've got some great episodes coming up and some new exciting stuff for you. Hopefully we will be getting our merch back online too someday soon. So we will keep you guys updated. In conclusion, first of all, Italian ices are meant to be a treat, not an everyday adventure. And maybe if you weren't such a litter bug, you wouldn't have gotten caught. And maybe you shouldn't be just cutting down people's trees that are dropping things into your yard when you're dropping Italian ice wrappers all over town. <laughs> I know, I'm surprised there wasn't an Italian ice wrapper at the at the stump. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.